Hi, guys. It's good to see you guys this morning. It's good to be with you. Jason, thanks for that, that introduction. Um, man, it's so cool hearing you guys' stories about how uh, Jesus used a community in your lives to, to change your life and to, to invite you into a relationship with him. That's, that's similar to my story. Jesus called me to, to be a Christian before I came to college. He called me into that saving relationship with him. But it was in college that I got to experience community for the first time in some really unique ways. And so as I reached the end of my college career, and, and my, my wife Stephanie and I were married for one year at that point, and we knew that there was this church plant going to, from Bowling Green to Kent State. And I was super excited about that for a couple reasons. Uh, the first is because Jason was leading the church plant, and I, I knew that I wanted to follow Jason. Uh, so that was, that was, seriously, I was, I was wherever you go, I'm going to go. Um, so I was all in with Jason. And the second thing, probably the most important thing, is during those, those years at H. Joe Bowling Green, uh, God showed me a community. And, and I saw that way that God can work uniquely in a community and change someone's life. And I wanted so much for other people to experience that same thing. Um, so if, if you're beginning to get the, the inklings of that, if you're beginning to get a taste of that, then don't be selfish with what you're experiencing, right? Other people need what you are beginning to experience. Other people need to see the change that Jesus could make in their life through your community. And so that takes some stepping out in faith. That takes some bravery maybe on your part. That takes some letting go of uh, pride and reputation and, and all kinds of other things. But if God is calling you to step out in faith and share this community with others, I, I pray that you would be uh, brave enough to, to step out and obey. So we're going to talk more about this, this unique community that God has called us into this morning. We're going to spend most of our time actually right in Ezekiel 37. And so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in the back half of Ezekiel 37 here today. So we're going to start in verse 15. We're going to pick up basically right where we left off from yesterday. It says, again, a message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, take a piece of wood and carve on it these words. This represents Judah and its allied tribes. Then take another piece and carve these words on it. This represents Ephraim and the northern tribes of Israel. Now, Hold them together in your hand as if they're one piece of wood. And when your people ask you what your actions mean, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take Ephraim and the northern tribes and I'll join them to Judah. I will make them one piece of wood in my hand. Then hold out the pieces of wood you've inscribed so the people can see them. and Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. 
I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them home to their own land from the places where they've been scattered. I will unify them into one nation on the mountains of Israel. One king will rule them all. No longer will they be divided into two nations or two kingdoms. They will never again pollute themselves with their idols and vile images and rebellion. For I will save them from their sinful apostasy. I will cleanse them. They will, be, they will truly be my people and I will be their God. So we get just this first vision of these, these dry bones in this valley, uh, having skin put on them and having uh, breath breathed into them and the Spirit of God filling them, right? And then we get this, this separate uh, vision here that Ezekiel has of taking two sticks and, and placing them together. And he writes on one stick, he's supposed to write Judah on one stick, and he's supposed to write Israel on the other stick, and he's supposed to take these sticks and hold them together for people to see. So like a little bit of street performance art almost. So Israel and Judah, just a little background for you, had once been one country, united in language and faith. But after a few hundred years of being one country, they, they did what a lot of young countries do. They, they split apart. And now both countries, Israel and Judah, had found themselves taken over by an even larger country, by Babylon. And found themselves exiled in a foreign land. Now in many ways, what had happened to these two countries was pretty common. Historically speaking, anyway. They were a newly established nation. And stability among nations is actually only kind of a concept of the last couple hundred years. Uh, nations were, were not very stable in the way that we think of them today. So nations kind of came and went and kingdoms uh, rose and fell. And so it, it wasn't really anything historically to, to bat an eye at. Or bat and, yeah, I said it the right way. <laughs> they actually spent equal amounts of uh, time unified as one country and, and divided as two countries. So that doesn't seem like any great tragedy. When they were separate countries, they had their own political alliances. They sought out different religious customs from the nations that were surrounding them, and particularly from larger allied countries, they would seek out their religious customs. They were sometimes at peace with one another, sometimes they were at war with one another, but all of this in the scope of human history is amazingly normal. It's business as usual. This happens. At the same time, their situation was incredibly unique. They weren't meant to act in this way. They weren't actually meant to behave the way uh, fledgling nation states would typically behave. In fact, they were called into something completely different. There's this whole spiritual political history that told them otherwise that they were supposed to behave in a different way. So hundreds and hundreds of years before, God actually told them this. Genesis 17, 7, he said, I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is an everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. 
From the very beginning, when God was first casting vision for this group of people with one ancestor, right? He, he lays out this whole spiritual vision. You are going to be my people. Similar vision in Exodus 6. The country has grown at this point, and he's, he's pulling them out of uh, a foreign nation. And he says this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from underneath the burden of the Egyptians. It says something similar later in the book of Leviticus. He says, I will walk among you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So they had this vision laid out for them this unique way that they were supposed to act. So in the scope of human history, the way that they ended up acting may have looked normal on the surface, but they were called into something unique, but it went horribly wrong. Because they did go about business as usual, as nations do, and they fought, and they struggled for power. They forgot that they were called into something unique and beautiful. And at the beginning of Exodus, Exodus, or I'm sorry, at the beginning of Ezekiel, Ezekiel spends all of his time in the first chapters of this book kind of laying out just how bad the situation had become, reminding them of what they had forgotten, reminding them of the calling that they'd had and how far they'd strayed from it. But the strange thing is, is even in the midst of it, right, even though they've been taken over and, and brought into a foreign country, they're still in the middle of this, unaware of how badly things had gone for them. They still don't know. They're in the midst of suffering. They're in the midst of exile. Their most important religious cities had been sacked and destroyed. And still, they, they can't face the fact this is not what they were called to. We find ourselves in a similar situation. Maybe it doesn't feel like uh, you've been exiled off in a foreign country. Maybe it doesn't feel like you've been taken over by a foreign army but we find ourselves in a similar situation where if you look at our interactions, if you look at the way our country interacts with other countries, if you look at the way our community interacts with other communities, if you look at even our interpersonal relationships, right? We are all going about business as usual. And what is business as usual for human interaction? It's division, it's violence, it's power struggles. All of this might be normal in human history, right? This goes on at a global level, but it also goes on even in our individual relationships, right? If you look at the way we interact with one another, if you look at the way your community of Kent or Bowling Green or wherever you're at is interacting with one another, what you're going to see is infighting, division, gaslighting, racism, sexism, power struggles. You're going to see all of these things in our interpersonal relationships. You're going to see violence of words. You're going to see selfishness. You're going to see these things just impacting humans everywhere, right? All of this is normal. If you were to take all the scope of human history and you were to put a red dot everywhere on the line of human history where man has fought one another, has been at war with one another, then the entire line of human history bleeds red. It isn't as if we haven't tried to fix these things. 
Even today, we, we find ourselves in a situation where we're probably the most connected to one another that we've ever been through the, the, the mysteries or miracles of technology, right? If you want to call it that. Probably more connected than we've ever been to one another. Probably better at relating to one another than we've ever been. We're probably more socially and emotionally intelligent than we've ever been in the scope of human history. But still we find ourselves in the same mess. Now, if all of this is normal, though, and, and historically speaking, it is, if all of this is normal, why do we long for something different? Why is there something deep inside of you? Why is there something down in your bones that longs for something different than what we're currently experiencing in our relationships and in our society and in our communities? Why do we long for something different if this is the way it was meant to be? Why is there something inside of you that says, no, 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 this isn't how it's meant to be. There's got to be something different out there. If this is thing, how things have always been, then why can we imagine a better world? C.S. Lewis captures this in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, which is a children's series, I know. I have kids. I read a lot of children's books. You're going to find that out. Uh, this is from the Silver Chair. And so the protagonist is kind of having an argument with, with the antagonist of the story. And he says this in response uh, to her saying that the, this, this world that they're currently experiencing is the only world. There is no other world. And he says this. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. And that's why I'm going to stand by the play world You long for something more. You long for something different in your communities. And your longings for a different world, because there, there is one. Because there actually is a different world, because you, you are called into a different world, right? You are a spiritual person, and there are spiritual realities at play here. So you were created not to die, but to live. You were created not for war, but you were not created for division. You were created for peace. You were created not to be in want and need. You were created to be fulfilled and satisfied, right? You were created for God himself to be in relationship with him. And you were created not to be alone, but to be in community. I think Ezekiel 37 gives us a, a picture of what this redeemed community looks like. So I want to I point out a few things. I know that this is written to some countries from long, long ago. But that vision that Ezekiel is laying out is actually true for the church today. This same calling that God gave Ezekiel to give to his people is the same calling that God gives us today. So five things I want to point out to you. Here from Ezekiel. First, we have to rewind for a little bit. 
First thing I think we see from Ezekiel 37 is that we were created not to be alone, but we were created to be together. In verse 10, it says this, so I spoke this, I'm sorry, I spoke the message he commanded to, to me, and breath came into their bodies, and they all came to life, and they stood up on their feet, a great army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. And then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Now, maybe this seems obvious. Seems like an obvious point. But I think it's so essential, and I think if we assume it, we miss it. God does not give Ezekiel a vision of an individual person resurrected. That's not actually the vision that he gives him. God gives Ezekiel a vision of an entire army resurrected. Now, they are resurrected individually, right? They are given new life individually. Uh, skin comes back onto their bones, Life is breathed into their lungs, right? But they're resurrected together. They're not resurrected alone. In other words, God is after a people, not a person. You weren't meant to be alone. You weren't meant to be resurrected all alone. You weren't created for independence. You weren't created for loneliness. God did not bring you back from death to life for you to walk through this life alone. And so if, if loneliness is the primary feeling that you walk around with, you are experiencing something not as God intended. He brought people back to life so that they could be together as a people. And so when God is casting his original vision for this people, he doesn't say, you'll be my man or you'll be my woman. He says, you will be my people. He's after people together. And he calls his people his church. Men and women brought from death to life together on mission together. This was really eye-opening for me when I first became a Christian. So when Jesus first called me to follow him, for the first few years of being a Christian, I, I really thought that that relationship was just about me and God. And my, most of my focus in my spiritual life was just about that relationship, me and God. And if I had my way, mostly me. So it was about my spiritual growth, my faith, my giftings, what I thought about Scripture. Those aren't terrible things, but they were missing something. And one day in, in my, my late teens, I had my eyes open to a, a glorious reality. It was a hard reality, but it was a glorious reality. I figured out in my late teens that I was really dumb and sinful. 
I figured out both of those things. I thought those things were actually going to stop when I became a Christian, and God opened my eyes to the fact that they didn't stop. I was still dumb, and I was still sinful, even though I had become a Christian and started following Jesus. And then something changed. Is that I got embedded in a community. And I had, had people all around me who, who knew my life, who asked questions of me, who were walking alongside of me as we were reading scripture together, as we were going about life together, as we were on mission together. And here's, here's the new beautiful reality. I was still dumb and sinful, but I wasn't alone. I had people walking alongside me in that. I had people who were able to point to areas of my life and say, have, have you considered that this thing that you're holding on to is not good? Have you considered that you use your words a lot to, to hurt people and to harm people? I know you think you're being funny, but you're not actually that funny, right? I had people there to correct me, but I also had people to build me up. It wasn't all correction either. It was, hey, I really, I think God has gifted you in this. I think God's doing something in your life with this. I really appreciate the way that you're able to lead other people in, in this way and, and that way. We're not created to be alone. We're created to be together. We also see in Ezekiel 37 that the church, our community, is not divided, but one. Verse 21. And give them this message from the sovereign Lord. I will gather the people of Israel from among the nations. I will bring them home to their own land from the places where they have been scattered. And I will unify them into one nation on the mountains of Israel. Israel and Judah had plenty of reasons to stay divided. They had plenty of reasons not to get together. Like I said, they were separate countries for basically as long as they were one country. There was a history of fighting between them. In fact, there were times in their history where they straight up went to war against one another, where they executed one another's leaders, right? It would have been easier for those two countries to look at one another and say, no thanks, too much bad blood, too much disagreement. It's generally the way things exist today. It's easier to exist today in a tribe. It's much easier. Tribes aren't necessarily a bad thing. They're just bound around a common purpose or interest. That makes sense, right? We, we tend to hang out with people who are, are similar to us or doing similar things to us, right? I spend time with runners because I run and they run. I spend time with teachers because I, I teach and we teach together. I have people in my life who share similar interests to me and we, we like the same music and we, you know, uh, geek out about hipster jeans or whatever stupid thing we're worried about today, you know? Tribes aren't bad but tribes are ultimately about how we mutually benefit one another. They're ultimately transactional. What do I bring to the equation? What do I take from the equation? The church is much bigger than a tribe. 
Church community is bigger than any external markers or interests. It's bigger than nationality. It's bigger than language. It's bigger than tribe or custom or race or culture. It's bigger than political belief, right? It's bigger than all of these things. Another children's book, it's called God's Very Good Idea. It says this, when Jesus welcomes someone, he welcomes them into his family forever. He welcomes people who like reading. He welcomes people who like riding bikes. He welcomes people with darker skin, people with lighter skin. He welcomes people with curly hair, people with straight hair. God's family is called his church. This is God's very good idea. Lots of different people enjoying loving him and loving each other. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 say this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Once you were not a people, You had no reason to be together. You're different. You have different interests. You have different backgrounds. Uh, Some of you speak different languages, different cultures, but not anymore. You've been bound by something, something bigger. You've been brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we first planted a church in Cat. There was this sort of joke that went around our team that if uh, we weren't Christians, we probably wouldn't like each other very much. Um, Maybe not the greatest joke to tell on your church plant. I don't know. (laughs) The point is we were different from one another, right? Some of us were jocks, not me. Some of us were were nerds, me, right? Uh, Some of us uh, were, were, you know, all kinds of different things about us. But God brought us together, right? It's not, it's not just that he overcame those differences. It's that what brought us together was so much bigger and so much better than those differences ever were in the first place. There was so much bigger and better than any of the interests that we had individually. And so what really happened is we came to love one another, not just tolerate one another's differences, but deeply love one another even in those differences. Once we were not a people, But now, we're a people. It doesn't mean it's easy. I painted a fairly rosy picture of it, but that doesn't mean that any of that work was easy. Like I said, Israel and Judah had serious problems between them. Serious things had transpired between them. Serious hurts had happened. Serious disagreements. Not petty things. Here's an important reality, though. This is what I love that First Peter uh, points out to us, right? You were once enemies of God. There was once something insurmountable between you and God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have Right? God overcame that barrier that was, was between you and him, right? Jesus stood in the gap, like Grant told us yesterday, right? 
God made reconciliation with you. That was his mission. That was what he was about. And so we can reconcile with one another. There is no gap too big. There is no difference too big. God overcame the largest differences, and he calls us to be in that ministry of reconciliation with one another. Now, it is hard. I'm on a a leadership team for our church, and that sounds like a fun title, and it is. And there's lots of goofing off, and there's lots of fun stuff that goes on in those meetings. But the majority of what we do actually is make really hard decisions. Decisions without clear right answers. Decisions that, that will ultimately involve hurting someone or something or disappointing someone or something or taking a stand on something that's unpopular, right? That's a lot of the decisions we make. And because we're engaged in these decisions together, we sometimes disagree with one another. We sometimes hurt each other. And we sometimes take stances that the that, that other people in the leadership team don't, don't like about the other person. We don't always see eye to eye. But we believe in unity. We believe that, that the God we serve is so much bigger than any of our individual opinions or preferences, right? And so we, we prioritize unity with one another. And so we, sometimes we have to apologize to each other. Sometimes we have to call each other after meetings and say, are, are we okay? Is our friendship still okay? Do, do you need me to walk back anything that I said? Did I say it too strongly? Do you, do you think that I'm, I'm having ulterior motives here? Check, check the motives of my heart for me. We keep short accounts with one another. We apologize to one another. We ask for forgiveness when we sin against one another. None of this is easy work, but it is the most important work that we do. third aspect of this community that God calls us into is that it is under the authority of a king. Verse 22. One king will rule them all. No longer will they be divided into two nations or into two kingdoms. This would have been really comforting news. They may not have loved uh, one another. They may not have had their eyes open to the, the problems that their countries were experiencing at that time. But this, there is one thing that's very clear. If you, if you read the history of these two countries, is they had, they, had, they had had leader after leader after king after king, and all of them were terrible and disappointing. And so God meets them with this news. No more of that. No more of the power struggles, right? No more bad king followed by bad king followed by this person killing that person, right? That's not the way we're going to do it anymore. We're going to have one king, one authority over you. Now, that may not immediately strike you as good news, however. But I don't want you to get scared by those words. I don't want you to get scared by the word of authority or king or rule, even though I know they can be challenging. Because I think sometimes authority is challenging because there have been some real historic abuses of authority. 
there have been some real shortcomings of authority, right? And that's, that's true even in our churches, right? But I also want to tell you the reason that you, you might struggle with the word authority is because it pushes back on the popular idea that you're the ultimate authority of your own life. It pushes back on the popular idea that you get to decide what's true and what's good and what you will do and what you won't do. God says you're, you're under authority as a church. And to, to really grasp that, to really understand that, I think there's, there's two aspects of God you have to understand. First is his godness. The second is his goodness. When God sets himself up as an authority, there is an aspect of that that is just fitting. It's just true to who he is, right? If God is who he says he is, then he's the God of the universe. He's the one who spoke everything into being, right? He is the one who created you by his will. And let this blow your mind for a second. You only exist by his will. You only continue to exist by his will. Right? That's, that's the authority that you're dealing with here, right? That's the bigness of who God is. And so the bigness of God necessitates authority, right? How could that person not be in charge? He is. But that's scary, right? Who could wield that much authority and power? But God is also good because he put on flesh. And he came and he lived with us and he served and he healed and he taught and he was with his people. And so you have in Jesus Christ these two servant king, right? Two tensions. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about the authority of Christ and it says this, That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but the one to come. And God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's the good authority of who Jesus is, right? And we, we, yes, we are similar sometimes to Israel and Judah in that we have gone our own way and we've looked for our own authority and we've tried to work things out on our own. But to be in the community known as the church is to give up your own authority. It is to surrender and to submit your life to the authority that is Jesus the King. couple more. We also see from Ezekiel 37 that this community that God calls us into is holy and undefiled. It says they will never again pollute themselves with their idols and vile images and rebellion for I will save them from their sinful apostasy. Sinfulness is not what God calls the church to. Instead, he calls his church, he calls his people into holiness, into purity. Ephesians 4 says it like this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, 
which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, let's, let's, let's be real. Anyone who spent time in the church, probably like more than like 10 minutes, can see this isn't always true of us. Right? Sometimes that's a funny reality. And sometimes it is deeply heartbreaking that we fall short of this as a church. I used to get really down on the church in my, uh, my early 20s, which was a very popular time to be down on things. Um, no, it's true for me too, right? But I used to get really down on the church. I used to see all the ways it was falling short. I'm like, oh, the church is too political. Oh, the church is too aligned with war. Oh, the church is too this, it's too that. I had a whole list. Rattle it off through you, and I'm, boy, I was, I was happy to do that. Here's what I didn't understand, though. I didn't understand that this is a faith issue. That's what I wasn't grasping, is that this is ultimately about my faith in who God was. Because look, look at that verse again. Look at verse 23. They won't pollute themselves and their idols, vile images, rebellion, right? That sounds like church holiness, right? But look at the second part. For I will save them from their apostasy. That's a fancy word. Probably don't use it very much. Apostasy means backsliding. It means going the opposite way of the way you were going. Right? It means falling back into the same stuff that seems to entangle you. It means, it means going astray from the path that you were on. Who saves them from that? God does. Right? The church doesn't save itself from apostasy. The church doesn't pull itself up by its own bootstraps and correct course. Right? God is going to save his church. So, we don't do this alone. Because God called us into this together, and he uses his church to do this with one another, right? So we, we see the sin in one another's lives, and we help one another deal with it. We call it out because it's the most loving thing we could do. We help one another course correct. We help, of course, see the things that we're good at and that we're, we're talented at. And we, we give one another uh, praise and build one another up and edify one another. But we also point out when we're going astray. Quick confession. I struggle with my speech. Uh, probably not, definitely not surprising for anybody who knows me, but um, maybe... Probably not surprising for any of you either who just met me. Um, I sometimes react real quickly to things. Uh, and sometimes I get a little punchy with my words. And sometimes I am uh, prone to bombast, uh, exaggerating how bad something is, how good something is, right? And sometimes I am really prone to anger in my words. prone to coarse joking, thinking I'm funnier than I actually am. I have people in my life who see those things and 
say something about it. Right? I have people in my life who correct my speech. Now, here's the other amazing thing is it's not always just one-sided on them. Because I have these people consistently in my life, their presence in my life, just them being around, actually makes me want to be better at this. Right? There are people in my life who just their presence draws me into wanting to be holy. Right? Air gas makes me want to be more careful with my words. Okay? Jason Slack makes me want to be more encouraging. Right? Because I can see that holiness in his life, because I can see the presence of God in his life, in his speech. I want to imitate that. And so who draws you to holiness? Who draws you into that in your community? Are you surrounded with people like that who make you want to be holier? God wants that for you. Last thing. The community of God is a community of people rescued by God and not themselves. Verse 23, for I will save them from their sinful apostasy. I will cleanse them, and then they will truly be my people, and I will be their God. My sincere hope is that I've I've painted a picture here of a church that you, you want to desperately see. I told you that the things that you long for deep within yourself are true, right? And I've tried to paint a picture that that shows you that it is, but what I need you to know is I'm not painting a picture of idealism. I'm not trying to tell you about some pie-in-the-sky dream. Scripture here is not painting for us a picture of what the church should be like in theory and ignoring the difficulties of reality, right? It's not idealistic, but what it is is supernatural. You see, idealism is a high view of humanity that ignores human nature. But a view of the supernatural means we have a high view of God and the promises of Scripture, right? And there is a supernatural act of grace here at work in these communities, right? It is a supernatural act of grace that brings you from death to life. It is a supernatural act of grace that keeps you there, and it will be a supernatural act of grace that will bring you home. This is a supernatural thing we're describing here. None of this is possible if we're trying to do it on our own. All of this is possible if God is in control and in charge and rescuing us. There are some practical elements to being a church community. I hope, I hope you get to see a picture of some of them. We meet together, we sing together, we read God's word together, we confess sin to one another, we're patient with each other, we carry one another's burdens, right? Those are, those are practical things, but there's an element to what we're doing in here that is simply in God's hands. It's a miracle. It is a work of grace that God has started in our lives and brought us together. It is a work of grace that he is doing in this room right now in his sanctification of us, in his maturing of us, in his multiplying of ministries, right? That is the work of God. 
And I want you to have faith that it's ultimately a work of God that he will complete. We will be his people. and He will be our God. We will be his people fully, completely, holy, and in glory. And he will be our God, glorified, lifted up, and worshipped as he truly is. Let me read one little uh, passage of scripture for you, and I'll pray for you. Ephesians 4, 2 through 6 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me pray for us. God, you are so good. And you are so faithful, even when we are unfaithful. And your grace is so big, so much bigger than all of our imperfections, our imperfections individually, and even our, our imperfections as a church collectively, God. We see this beautiful reality of, of the church painted for us, Lord, and thank you for painting that picture for us through Scripture. But God, we, we also confess we can't do it without you. We need your grace to knit us together. We need your grace to carry us to completion together. So God, fill us with your spirit. Let us, let us be that supernatural presence in one another's lives, God. Let us continue to have story after story after story of you using our churches to draw us closer to you. God, unify us in supernatural ways. Overcome the, the barriers that, that we, we think we can't overcome. God, overcome our differences in, in the way that we, we know that we could never overcome. God, let us forgive one another easily. Let us have mercy on one another easily, God, because you, you, you've done so much and you've had so much mercy on us. God, I love this church. I love these people. God, I, I know that you, you love them so much more. And so, God, fill, fill our hearts with your love that you have for us. Open our eyes that we can, we can see the church as you see it. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.